Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, welcome to Real Vision Crypto. Enjoy today's show. Great. So welcome, Fabian. It's it's great to have you and thanks for, for taking the time. Um, isn't, isn't it great? We usually end up, uh, you know, meeting on at conferences or on panels where then you have this kind of uh, you talking for three minutes, uh, others, me talking for two. Now we get some real quality time. So I really can't wait and look forward to the conversation. Yeah, I was just going to say it's an actual conversation. We get the opportunity to have. It's great. So thank you very much for the invitation, Matthias. It's a pleasure. And it's actually a special one. It's the first uh, interview I do, uh, which is broadcast on Real Vision. So let's make it a fun, uh, informal and really cool one for for the for the audience. That's good. Um, uh, Fabian, you are you are a professor for for DLT and and, and fintech at the University of, of Basel. You run the university's Center for Innovative Finance. Uh, you hold a PhD in crypto assets and blockchain economics, but you're also a, a best-selling author with the book uh, Bitcoin, Blockchain, and, and Crypto Assets um, by MIT Press. But what you do goes way beyond uh, academia. In fact. Uh, that's clear when one sees you at the conferences, you're deep into what's happening in the DeFi space. Um, you, you are on boards of, of crypto, uh, crypto fund, a regulated crypto fund, uh, on working groups for the world, world economic forum, but also a, a thought after expert for when it comes to regulators around the world, figuring out how to deal, um, with this uh, new asset class. So. A very uh, uh, rounded and an and interesting perspective on what's happening. But before we go into this, I actually want to ask you just personally, how did it all start for you? How did you get into crypto? What triggered your interest? Mm. You know, uh, originally, I always say I'm a, um, I was a monetary economist and I studied economics and obviously... I uh, also had some exposure to financial markets. I used to work for banks previously. But in my spare time, I'm also a huge gaming fan. <laughs> so I have a, have a video game collection at home and uh, I started programming uh, in my in my spare time as a hobby, really. And so when you have these two different perspectives, so first of all, economics and monetary economics, but also the exposure to the more technical side, uh, then you get confronted with these things relatively early. And in my case, it was a friend of mine who told me about this new thing, uh, Bitcoin. And of course, as an economist, I was extremely skeptical in the beginning until I started looking into the math, until I look, started looking into the protocol itself. And the more I looked into it, the more excited I got. And, and when was that? Uh, kind of just to, focus, to give listeners a, a sense. Uh, approximately 2013, but then it took me a while to really, to really uh, get it. I mean, as I said, as with most people you talk to that got exposed to it relatively early, um, you are really skeptical, and uh, it takes it takes you a while. At least it took me a while to understand. Yeah, how has your, if you could, I mean, maybe frame it in, in some stages or so. How has has this? evolved was it initially just like interest in tech and then it got into uh, mm-hmm. now actually making it, it's 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 deep part it's a big part of your life your job uh, uh, i guess also private uh, privately interest so how did that evolve and what were the trigger points for you yeah. you know at that time i was still a student at the university 
and uh, I, I took the opportunity and started researching it during my studies. So I, I, my, my master thesis was about Bitcoin mining and the efficiencies in Bitcoin mining. So basically looking at which part contributes towards the security of the protocol and which part is actually just wasted. That was a, a model I have created as part of my master thesis. And from there, then I, I started writing the book, uh, did my PhD on the topic. Of course, uh, on, on in, the, in my private life, I went to all of these meetups here in Switzerland. There was quite a an active community, uh, especially in Zurich at that time. And I got to meet uh, all kinds of different people who are really deep in, in into crypto and have been building these exciting protocols. And that helped me a lot, actually, also later in the research. Yep. Are there um, are there things right now, if you look at the industry, that that you don't like? Kind of, you know, because you can obviously yeah. from your neutral perspe perspective uh, from mm -hmm. academia. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, sometimes, do you know the book Animal Farm? from George yes. Orwell. Yes. <laughs> I think sometimes crypto feels a little bit like Animal Farm. <laughs> you know, you have all of these ideas, yeah. these, these uh, utopian ideas of uh, decentralizing financial markets and uh, uh, sticking it to the man and whatever uh, these people say. And at the end of the day, not all of them. I mean, there are some people who legitimately have uh, these ideas and want to contribute towards a more open financial system. But when you look at it closely, uh, most of them are just here to make money. And that is super annoying. And also when we talk about decentralized finance specifically, um, there are uh, some exciting and new protocols and some neutral infrastructure and things that are legitimately decentralized. Um, but most of the protocols have some centralized components and the claims of decentralization in some cases are just to get around regulation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned it a little bit. There's also a lot of I ideology sometimes, uh, mm. at least on the surface, but then when you go one level deeper, maybe not so much and just it can also be greed um, to what yeah. you're referring to. Uh, for you personally, do you have certain core beliefs that you just really believe in that you feel mm. a more decentralized financial market infrastructure or more broadly just world um, or at least aspects of the world the way we transfer anything of value so um, that you really believe in and that you're trying to to yeah. uh, to, to further build on you know one thing i'm extremely worried about and is when you look at how the world is developing and that there are more and more data points and just pretty much anything about you and about your personal life and your assets are available in a digital form. And then at the same time, there are certain projects that are trying to put this information on a heavily centralized ledger, which is essentially controlled by one centralized node in many cases then this is super dangerous as far as I'm concerned. I mean, when you look at human history, it's cyclical to some extent. And uh, at some point, there will be someone raising to power who will misbehave and will make use of this infrastructure uh, to get rid of political opponents, for example, to get rid of freedom of speech, to just uh, claim the assets from somebody um, who is not in favor of. And I think that's extremely uh, dangerous. And when you look at the blockchain, what it actually does and the benefits it has is that this very foundational layer, hmm, the, the very bottom, 
can be decentralized. It belongs to everyone. It can be neutral. It's not controlled by a, a certain party. And of course, on top of that, you can build centralized services again. There will be certain tokens which are heavily centralized, have some dependencies. There will be additional protocols on top of that. But when you have a foundational layer that is somewhat independent, that is neutral, that's already a huge benefit and might contribute to a, a better future. And that's what that, in a nutshell, that is what motivates me. And your sentiment, if you, if you, if you uh, over the last five years and your confidence in this actually happening, I'm really also talking about that very core protocol, the base layer and, and it being decentralized and the benefits it brings. Do you, do you, are you more optimistic, same yes. level of optimism or less than if you kind of the trajectory of the last five years? And as you look ahead. Yeah, a lot more actually, because well, initially, let's say like five years ago, uh, when you talk to commercial banks about these topics, the way in many cases they understood the blockchain is that they want to have a blockchain running in-house. Well, they, they are in control of so essentially a centralized blockchain. And at that point, it's just a centralized database. And many of the advantages that are usually associated with a blockchain, uh, you don't really get when you're, when you're the only node running it, right? And in the last few years, I think many companies and many uh, players uh, in the industry started to understand that it's about transparency, about interoperability, about this composability, and started to look more heavily into public blockchains. And uh, that's why I'm quite optimistic that this may actually happen in some parts of the world, in other parts of the world. Uh, clearly, this will not happen. Uh, there we will see a heavily centralized infrastructure with just a single ledger. Yeah, you're, you're certainly referring to places such as uh, as China. I sometimes uh, tell people when they bring forward, oh, China banned Bitcoin, you can also see this as being a, um, kind of confirming the the what Bitcoin wants to stand for because it's a, a yeah. significant clash, right? So it, I, in that sense, it's not a bad thing for Bitcoin so much. It's just confirming the, the, the camps. Um, but do, do you also see a, 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 a situation where just the people, like the individuals, even in such structures or, or, or countries could still use this in the decentralized infrastructure and kind of free themselves from, from complete centralization? Or is that a utopian uh, thinking? I think to some extent it might be possible. Uh, the huge problem public blockchains have. It's actually quite the opposite you usually read in the media is that they may be too transparent. <laughs> so whenever you're doing something on a public blockchain, there is absolutely no privacy. Yes, you're using pseudonyms. Yes, you're using addresses, accounts. But at the end of the day, when you make, make one mistake, when, when you mm, uh, do not hide your IP address, let's say, or there are all certain characteristics that can be associated with your real-world identity, uh, then all of the proof is stored on this public ledger. And... I mean, yes, as I said, there might be some use cases, um, but at the end of the day, it's super hard to hide things on the blockchain. And that way, when, when, it, when it's illegal in a certain country, and when there really is a crackdown by, by a certain government, then it might be hard to do something with these assets. That's why I'm not that optimistic on that front. Yeah, yeah. Uh 
I would agree. And it's also interesting to then sometimes, if your argument is true, it's also interesting how, how often and how strongly the argument is brought forward that crypto could be used to, you know, circumvent sanctions or, or, uh, you know, to do illegal activities, which, um, as with any other technology, this, of course, also happens, but it's actually not as, as trivial or, or, or simple as oftentimes people that haven't really looked into the tech would expect yeah, I think there's yeah. a lot of education that we still have to do. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, when you think about sanctions, let's go with that example really quick. Um, and there is a person who is on the sanction list and would like to use Bitcoin, then there are really two options. Uh, number one, um, this person would have to buy the Bitcoin right now. Then this person would have to go through a, to a regulated entity such as a centralized exchange or, or a bank. And they uh, they have to apply the sanctions list, right? They are required to do so by the regulator. These are centralized entities. As such, if they if they actually do their job, uh, then this should not happen. And the other option would be that this person already had Bitcoin for a really long time, but then they still need a Western counterpart, somebody who is not on the sanction list and would be willing to enter a trade, right, for, for, for these Bitcoin in that case. Now, we have to understand that this Western counterpart would assume a huge risk. Uh, from a from a, a regulatory perspective, uh, but also reputation-wise. And this goes back again because we're talking about an open ledger, about an open database, and the proof is stored on that blockchain uh, for for forever. Uh, and the second thing, I mean, how what, what do you do with these with these uh, Bitcoin? If you're if you're a Western party and you're accepting it, right? And uh, your your goal would obviously be to make use of that again. Uh, to, then you would have to bring it back to your financial system. But when you cannot bring any proof where it actually came from and, and how you earned these Bitcoin and it basically cannot show the history, then no one will accept it. And that's why it's not easy at all um, to circumvent sanctions with these crypto assets. Hey, if you like this clip, be sure to check out the full interview and more only on realvision.com forward slash crypto. It's 100% free. Sign up now.